Life of Christ. Missed you guys last Wednesday. And I'll miss you again next Wednesday because we're going to have a business meeting to decide on our deacons. So be here next Wednesday. There will be no Bible study. We'll talk about a couple other things because it's a business meeting. Uh, we'll, we'll take the time to discuss some other things, but we're not going to be going over finances, stuff like that. All right, we're going to be in Matthew 27. Go ahead and turn there for me, please. Matthew 27. As you're turning there, I'm going to wrap things up from the book of John, which is we were looking at the time where Christ is on the cross and the two thieves on the cross, the malefactors on the cross. Towards the end of Christ's hours on the cross, we read in John 19, 25 to 27, that Jesus' mother stood at the cross, and with his mother was his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Now remember... Jesus' mother was Mary, <laughs> and then his sister, his mother's sister was Mary, and then Mary Magdalene. So Mary is a very popular name. I, I've always been intrigued that a parent would call two of their daughters Mary. Now, maybe mother, his mother's sister is not a full sister. We don't know. The Bible doesn't clarify if it's a full sister or a half-sister. But to have two sisters both called Mary, that's interesting. Um, now, we find that uh, Jesus is looking at his mother. He's looking at Mary, and he recognizes that his mother is going to be minus a son. Does that mean that she has no other children? We know that Jesus has brothers, and we know that they turn out to be pretty good brothers. But at this point in Jesus' life, it doesn't seem that uh, his brothers are taking care of his mother like he would want. And so Jesus, in an act of compassion, looks to John, the disciple who he loved, and he said, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. It, it I think, is a great reminder of the responsibility we have to ensure that the people we left behind are, are, are well, cared for, well, well cared for, whether relationally or financially, emotionally. That you could say, well, you know, I'm going to be gone. They just got to care for themselves. Whether it's your elderly family or your younger family, Jesus is making sure that the, the one person in his family that you need to be cared for, his mom, is cared for. It might be that the sisters of Jesus were married. Obviously, the brothers of Jesus would have been young men in their 20s, early 30s, and probably didn't need to be cared for. So Jesus making sure that the ones he leaves behind are not left destitute. Remember what we're told later in the New Testament, that true religion, godly religion, is caring for the widows and the fatherless. And the mother of Jesus, I'm pretty convinced, is a widow. At this point, we don't see Joseph around, and so I'm pretty sure that Jesus stepped into that role of protector and, and, and encourager to his mom, and he wanted to make sure someone else had done that when he's gone. All right, now we're in Matthew 27. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. For three hours, we find there is darkness. This is in the middle of the day. This is not at night. This is not six o'clock to nine o'clock. This is in the middle of the day. And darkness, almost like an eclipse. The Bible doesn't say eclipse, but I, I in my, my head, imagine an eclipse. I don't just imagine clouds covering the sun. 
we're talking some deep darkness. Kind of like, in, in my opinion, similar to the plagues of Moses when there was darkness over the land. Unnatural darkness. Not an eclipse that lasted for just a few minutes where the moon goes over the sun briefly and then it comes back. This is three hours. An eclipse doesn't last three hours. There's no scientific explanation. There's no weather phenomenon that can explain the darkness that covers the land. This is a miracle of God. Not a miracle that necessarily helps someone or heals someone, but a miracle that points to the power of God. Why now? Well, I think it's intriguing that God used darkness to illustrate his power when he could, when he could and is going to use other things. But I think it's important to recognize that during this time, it seems Jesus is definitely carrying the sins of his soul of the of the of the world on his shoulders and with the sins of mankind burdening him down god shrouds that part of the world in darkness as an illustration of the darkness of man's sins as an illustration of the darkness the valley of the shadow of death that christ is walking through as an illustration of the the torment and emotional darkness christ is experiencing at this time maybe all the above maybe none of the above but god uses darkness he cries with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some nearby were told in verse 47, Matthew 27, 47. Some of them that stood there, they heard that and said, This man called for Elias. They grab a sponge, fill it with vinegar, bring, put it on a reed, uh, give it to him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Who are the rest? I think the rest are mostly mockers, those who are there not to mourn the passing of a friend, of a brother, of a son, of a teacher, of a savior. They're there, smiling, cruelly, glorying in the death of God's son. They're here to mock Jesus. They're here to revel in what they thought was their victory. They won. He lost. And they said, no, 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 no. Don't give him anything to drink. Let's see what this guy can do. He claims that he could have destroyed the temple and in three days rise it up. Now, we know he's referring to his body. Not that he couldn't build the temple in three days or three minutes or three seconds. But they're saying all the things he claimed he could do, let's see if he can call down Elijah to actually give him water or vinegar or whatever it is to ease his pain and to ease the suffering. Don't help this guy out. And these, I believe, are religious men. Religious men who even at the torment of the death of what they would call their enemy, they still have no compassion. I wonder how many Christians would be in the same boat, not, not with Christ, but if, if someone we disliked was dying. Would our compassion be so far gone that we would even say, no, 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 let them suffer. Let them die in torment as they tormented me emotionally in life. I wonder how many of us would reflect closer the cruelty of the Pharisees and the religious men rather than the compassion of Christ when we see an enemy suffering. What does God say about our enemies when they suffer? He says, give them water to drink. What does God say when our enemies torment us? He says, turn the other cheek. We are not to treat our enemies like the world treats enemies. It seems to me God desires that Christians do not have enemies, if at all possible. 
That's not to say people won't want to be our enemies, not that people won't attack us, but it, they should not be enemies by our choice. And if they are enemies by their own choice, we shouldn't treat them as such. We are to love our enemies. And love is an action verb, as I've said many times. In the way that you treat them, you treat them with kindness and compassion. Not what we see here. Well, we're told that after this event, Luke 23 and John and Mark, we're told Jesus cries with a loud voice. In Luke 23, we're told, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Having said thus, he gave up the ghost. He dies. Now, Matthew 27, verse 51. I think that we're all pretty familiar with the tearing of the veil of the temple. Remember, there was a location in the temple, the Holy of Holies, that only one man was allowed to enter, enter once a year for a special occasion. The Holy of Holies was what housed the Ark of the Covenant and some other important artifacts that God deemed special and unique. The Holy of Holies was really where the presence of God was felt deepest. And to enter the Holy of Holies unrighteously or without permission of God was a death sentence. And the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was not a small, frail thing. This was not a, a slight, uh, poorly made piece of cloth. This thing was massive, it was tall, it was wide, and it was thick. And we're told in Matthew 27, Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. I'm sure this is things you've heard before. It's interesting how, from God's point of view, it would make sense that God would tear it top to bottom, not bottom to top. And what's the purpose of this? Can you imagine the anxiety, the trauma, the fear of the priests as the, tor the, 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 the veil is torn, the curtain is torn? They probably didn't want to look because they were afraid they would die. If they're in the temple at this time, they definitely are not server, servants of Christ. They're not at the cross mourning his death. So these people are not in any way connecting the death of, the cross, of Christ on the cross to the veil, at least not yet. They must have thought, wow, some phenomenon due to the earthquake that takes place, maybe. And they think that something's happening. They wouldn't attribute it to God, probably. And so they're probably scared to look in the Holy of Holies. They were probably scared to, to replace the veil, which I'm sure that they did. The Bible does not tell us this, but I would imagine that it was replaced. God was trying to say that the old manner in which you worship me is coming to an end. There is a new way to worship me. Not that the old way was wrong. Not that God, by establishing a holy of holies, was somehow unhelpful or unhealthy or unbiblical. It was just a different way to worship God. In the Old Testament, you worshiped God through the priestly system. You brought your sacrifices, and with the assistance of the priests, you had a, a form of worship of God that included someone else kind of walking you through that and holding your spiritual hand, you might say, and making sure that everything that was done was done in the manner in which God designed so that your sacrifice and your worship would be received by God. Because even before the Old Testament law, we find that when uh, Cain was sacrificing outside of God's instructions, God didn't receive the sacrifice. So the purpose of, one of the purpose of the priests was to make sure that the sacrificial system was done correctly so God would receive your sacrifice and your worship would be um, bring pleasure to God, bring, bring a connection to God. But God said, we're done with that. Now he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and we're going to make worship a lot more personal. And now you no longer need to go to a priest to ensure 
that your worship follows my guidelines. He says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, and everyone now has the function of priests themselves with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to determine yourself if you are worshiping God within the boundaries that he has set. You say, Pastor Russ, are there boundaries for worship? Well, of course there are. We, we don't worship God by, by beating up the person next to us. That would be outside the boundaries of God's design for worship. We don't, we don't worship God by, by coming to a service and, and then, you know, uh, um, climbing up the walls or jumping over chairs. I guess some might do that. We don't do that. I would say that that's not the purpose of worship. So there are boundaries. And with the truth of God's word in an orderly fashion, in the Holy Spirit's direction, we worship God. But we are the priests now. We no longer go to the priests. But imagine the terror of these priests as that is torn. And for the first time, some of these priests, for the first time in their life, they have a glimpse of the Holy of Holies and probably think they're going to die. There's an earthquake. We're told that the rocks and the graves were opened. I'm sorry, the rocks rent, excuse me, the rocks rent. So massive boulders literally breaking in two. But then something that I don't think is taught very often and a lot, not a lot of people are familiar with, verse 52 says, the graves were opened and many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose. So these Old Testament saints raised from the dead. The Bible does not tell us if they remain alive. Did they only get a day? Did they get 24 hours, three hours? Were they, you know, get till midnight, midnight, and then they went back in their grave again, walked back? We don't know. And then keep in mind, if they've been dead for any amount of time, their bodies would be decayed. So God not only rose them from the dead, but reinstated their bodies to a place of um, acceptable visual and also smell. God is doing some amazing miracles. It wasn't just the darkness. It wasn't just the veil. It wasn't just the earthquake. People raising from the dead. What is it that you think these Old Testaments were saying when they rose from the dead? I guarantee you, they were talking about Christ. I guarantee you, they were preaching about the Messiah. Christ's first preaching revival was not with Peter at the Pentecost. It was with the dead saints rising up, entering the town, and talking with people about Christ. We're told in 53, went into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and appeared unto many. How is it possible that the apostles and the followers of Christ still don't understand what has happened and what is going to happen? When they see these things, it doesn't seem to bring them to a place of complete faith and acceptance. Because when Christ does appear to them, they're rather shocked. We're going to find that out tonight. One of them, Thomas, still doesn't believe it when it's told to him by reputable sources, his own fellow disciples. And yet here we have a story of a centurion in verse 54. He sees, and we're told when he sees, he states, truly this was the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? How what we would call the church members, those who grew up with, or have been around Christ for some time, those who've been followers of Christ for years, the church members struggle to believe what is next. They struggle to have faith that Christ is going to come back. The centurion sees all this and he says, there's only one answer for this. We just killed God. 
it saddens me to see how often Christians struggle with faith when sometimes the world has a better view. It's not, not all times, sometimes. The unsaved, the unbelievers, come to a, an easier place of faith than those who've been around Christians and the Bible and God's church their entire lives. In verse 56, uh, let's, let's go to verse 55. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee. Verse 56, among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. There, there was an opportunity for the disciples, essentially, what we're told, some of the closer followers of Christ, to see all these events. And the events were not enough to convince them that Christ had power over death. Let's go to John chapter 19, verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, meaning a non-Saturday Sabbath day. Now, remember, Jesus was in the cross three days and three nights. That does not necessarily mean or require three full days and three full nights. I'm pretty sure I went over this months ago. I'm not going to go over it in detail again today. But uh, just like when you said, uh, if, you, if you were to tell someone, yeah, yesterday, you could be referring to a portion of yesterday or all of yesterday. Uh, there is no biblical mandate that Christ was fully three 24-hour days. Now, there are some people who do believe that very strongly. They believe, well, there's a verse in the Old Testament or, uh, you know, referring to Jonah and how he was in the belly of the whale and, and how the Bible tells us that like Jonah, he was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. And they claim it has to be 72 hours full, three full 24 hours, except there is a problem with that statement. Consider me with this. If Christ died on Friday, which I do not believe he did, if he died on Friday and he was in the grave three days, you could say Friday was a partial day. Saturday was a full day, and then Sunday was a partial day because we're told he rose early morning on Sunday. So you could argue that technically Jesus was in the grave three parts of three different days, two partial days and one full day. What you cannot argue is Jesus Christ was in the grave three nights, right? Friday night to Saturday night, Saturday night to Sunday night. There is no third night, which is why I don't believe Christ died on Friday. Now, why is it that people believe Christ died on Friday? Because they are under the impression that the Sabbath day is always on Saturday. Now, the weekly Sabbath day is always on Saturday. By the way, this idea came from Catholicism. Back in the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, when even Catholics, who were the, really the only ones reading the Bible, a lot of them weren't well-versed in the Bible or historical facts regarding the Bible. And a lot of the popes were making statements that were completely crazy, not even close to the Bible or to anything that would be connected to the Bible. And so the Catholic religion hundreds of years ago established a holiday, Good Friday, with the ignorant assumption that the, the high day or the Sabbath day had to be referring to Saturday. Therefore, logically, Christ had to die on Friday. Except again, it wasn't three nights. Well, how could he die on Thursday? Because if he died on Thursday, Friday's not a Sabbath day. Well, that's mostly true, except there are holidays in the Jewish calendar that are also Sabbath days. Essentially, a Sabbath day was a day you did not work. And there were certain holidays, not all of them, certain holidays where God said, it is a Sabbath unto you. On this holiday, whenever it lands, if it lands on a Tuesday, it's a Tuesday Sabbath day. If it lands on a Sunday, it's a Sunday Sabbath day. If it lands on a Friday, 
It's a Friday Sabbath day, and you could essentially have two Sabbath days back to back. If the holiday Sabbath day landed on a Friday, you're not supposed to work. Then Saturday Sabbath, the normal one, also comes around two days in a row where you should not be working or preparing food. And so the Jews would know that, and they would prepare extra food and do what they had to do to take, essentially, two days off in a row. It's not that big of a deal. It's definitely doable. I believe that Christ died on Thursday. I believe the Sabbath day that we're speaking of here, the high Sabbath day, it says uh, in John chapter 19, for that Sabbath day was an high day or a holy day. God's word is literally giving you the separation of this Sabbath day is not Saturday. It's a different day. And so I believe he died on Thursday. And so you have Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, that is three nights. And you have from Thursday to Friday, Friday to Saturday, and then Saturday to Sunday. Now it is not three full days. Because if it was, consider this. If you said 24 hours from Thursday, it's Thursday evening, around evening, to Friday evening, that's one 24-hour. Friday evening to Saturday evening is two 24-hours. If you get a third full 24-hour day, when is Christ raising from the dead? Sunday night. But we're told he didn't raise from the dead Sunday night. We're told he raised when? Sunday morning. Well, well, what if we back it up to he died on Wednesday? Hey, it's a possibility. Christ could have died on Wednesday. The, the Bible doesn't tell us when the high Sabbath day was. It could have been on a Thursday. So he could have died on a Wednesday. High Sabbath on Thursday. Friday is free. Sabbath on Saturday. And then he rose on Sunday. Well, now we got a problem. If he died on Wednesday, Wednesday to Thursday night is one night. Thursday night to Friday night is two nights. Th Thursday, uh, Friday night to Saturday night is three nights. Saturday night to Sunday night is? It's four nights. You got four nights when you have that happening. And you got too many hours. It's more than 72. Because if he was to die on Wednesday night, 24 from Wednesday to Thursday is 1. Thursday to Friday is 224. And Friday to Saturday night is 324. And he didn't raise from the dead Saturday night. He rose from the dead Sunday morning. So you got 24 hours, 3 days, plus extra hours. There is no mathematical way for Christ to have been in the grave exactly 72 hours. It just could not have happened with the information we have available to us, which means Christ was not in the grave three full days. He was in the grave at least one or two full days and at least one or two partial days. It has to happen mathematically with what we know in Scripture. And yet every Easter, it blows my mind, it drives me crazy. Every Easter, I see people posting these little charts, these little graphs and saying, Christ died on Wednesday, see? And they say Wednesday to Thursday, Thursday to Friday, Friday to Saturday. And then if you look at where Christ rose, every time it's like the illustration literally is claiming that Christ is raising from the dead Saturday night. And I see Baptist preachers and Baptist Christians sharing these illustrations and saying Christ died on Wednesday, not Friday. Well, I agree he didn't die on Friday, but how could he have died on Wednesday? And I point this out to my friends and I say, guys, you're claiming that Christ rose to the dead on Saturday. They said, no, I'm not. I said, look at the graphic you just shared. The little dot where it says he rose is on Saturday night. It's not on Sunday morning. And then I say, look at the bottom. Oh, inevitably, these graphics they share have a website link. And I say, go to that website link. And you know what? Most of the time, the website link is attached to some form of Jehovah's Witness or, or um, Black Hebrew. And these, these religions... <laughs> are pretty far off when it comes to the truth. 
And essentially, the people who are putting out these charts want you to believe that Christ rose on Saturday, not on Sunday. Because to them, Saturday is the most important day. And they don't want Christ raising on the dead on Sunday because Saturday is the important day to them. And so they give out charts claiming that I get it when a Seventh-day Adventist does it. I don't get it when a Baptist does it. So know your Bible. And they say, well, he had to have been in the grave three full days and three full nights. Use a little bit of math, and you'll find there is no possible way for that to have happened. It was a parcel day, at least one parcel day. All right, so he's in the grave. I personally believe it was Thursday, which is why I believe Mary and the other women did not arrive at the grave until Sunday morning to redress the body. Because consider this, if he died on Wednesday, the high Sabbath was on Thursday, and there was a free day on Friday, when would they have gone to the tomb to redress the body? It would have been Friday. Why would they have come back Sunday again if they already redressed it in a better way? I get the impression that when he was originally prepared for the tomb, it was a hasty event. Remember, they're trying to get him in the tomb before the sun sets, right? So it's pretty fast. And the women knew this. So the women want to do a better job because it was hasty the first time. Why would they wait until Sunday if they had all day Friday to do it? They would not have. I heard one man say, well, they needed all day Friday to buy and purchase the herbs. What are you talking about? How, I know women like to shop, but I, I think that there's a little bit of urgency here. And I, think, I don't think the women would have taken 24 hours to purchase some basic herbs and ointments and oils with which to prepare the body of Christ. I, I just cannot see any other day Christ dying than Thursday. It's the only day that makes biblical mathematical sense or logical, in my opinion. So we do find Sunday morning, the women arrive at the tomb. Now, you can read Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66. The next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests, Pharisees, came together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember the deceiver. He said he would come alive after three days. Now, isn't that interesting? Did you catch that? They claimed at the trial that Christ stated he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days, and he's talking about the temple temple that people worship at. Whereas we know Christ is talking about his body. They knew what Christ meant. They say it right here. They said right here, he claimed he was going to die and come back from the dead in three days. In the trial, they used Jesus' words against him misinterpreting them on purpose, taking them out of context on purpose. In reality, in, in, the, in the desire to um, keep his followers from making them look bad, now they take his words in context, knowing full well what he meant. That's the kind of people Jesus was dealing with. And sometimes that's the kind of people we deal with, is it not? People who know exactly what you mean, but will restate what you said, in a way that makes you look stupid. That makes you look wrong. Why? Like these people, they just don't like you. What do you do with those kinds of people? I think there is wisdom in following the example of Christ. He pretty much just said nothing to him. What is there to be said? What do you say to people who have the ability to understand what you're saying but choosing to twist your words? You are only giving them more ammunition 
I have learned the hard way that the best defense sometimes, you didn't have wisdom to know when this is, sometimes the best defense is just silence. And either you've established a history of strong character or you haven't. <laughs> and you need to let your character defend you. The established character. If you have not established your character, well, then any words you say won't help anyways. But I will tell you this from my own experience. If you have established character and you speak when you shouldn't, you can actually lessen the testimony you've established through words at the wrong time to the wrong people. I get the strong desire we have to defend ourselves against lies. I know. Been there. I'm sure you have as well. Everyone, most everyone in this room, except for the young mag back here, most everyone in this room is too old to have not had to have been through that experience yet where you, you felt the desire to defend yourself against lies. All right, we've all been there. Some of us, it's, it's like an old friend. Many times we've been there. Think back. How often did it really help? I'm not saying it never did because there are times where it needs to be done. There are times where Christ did answer the fools. There are crimes, there are times where in Christ's ministry he did respond. And there are times when he did not. And there are times where he answered their question with the question, and he said, I'll answer if you give me this. And there are times when at the trial, he just said nothing. All right, so Christ kind of did all three. Have the wisdom to know the right time. To defend yourself, to cause them to think by, ask, by asking your own questions, to divert the conversation, which I guess four, to something completely different, because Christ did that sometimes. They asked a question, he said, well, let me tell you this. And he doesn't even, he doesn't even answer their question. Go somewhere else, all right? Or the fourth time, just keeping your mouth shut. The answer is not always defend yourself. Years ago, I remember there was a, an issue in the church I was at at the time, and a person was confused about my involvement in the issue. The confusion came because other people had said things that were not true about me. And so they were wondering, is this the case or is it not? And I was young, and so my, my reactive instinct was to defend myself. I was so passionate in my defense of myself, I actually I could see the concerned look on the person's eyes. Looking back, I can picture in their head, they didn't really believe what was said about me until I started defending myself. I could see the wheels turning in their head, which just caused me to want to defend myself even more, and I just kept digging that hole. <laughs> the person ended up leaving the church I was in at the time. They couldn't remain in the church that I was in, having believed the things that were told about me, which were to this day not true. It was my defense of myself that pushed them away. Isn't that ironic? If I had just said to them, look, I understand what they're saying, You've known me a long time. You either believe it or you don't based off of what you know about me. I, I, I hope I don't need to defend myself. If I had said that, I wonder how it would have gone. You live and learn. That is correct. So here we have the religious leaders proving to the world they knew all along what Jesus was talking about. 
how is it the religious leaders? I know, it's, I know I'm not trying to be overly harsh on the disciples. It's not purposeful. I just keep questioning. How did the disciples not say he's going to come back in three days when the religious leaders like, we're afraid he's coming back in three days, or we're afraid his disciples will steal him away because they heard he'll come back in three days, while the disciples are hiding away, wondering what to do next because they don't believe he's coming back in three days. Isn't that unfortunate? We saw earlier the centurion is in awe of all the events and has faith when the disciples run away. And here we see the world has a better understanding. These religious leaders have a better understanding of what Christ said than his own followers had of what Christ said. Well, of course, a watch is set, we're told in verse 66 of Matthew 27. And then the events of the morning. It's a hard thing to nail down the exact chronological order of events of the morning. And the reason it's difficult is because each gospel gives a a different version when i say different version i don't mean opposing version i mean more or less and sometimes different information different in the sense of it seems like something different is said but it's only because new information is given and we're not given the chronological order in which that new information should be placed so between all four gospels there's a lot of information given i'm not going to read all four gospels it's too much information too much to read you should do that it's in matthew 28 mark 16 luke 24 and john 20. that's where it begins the sunday morning begins in all of those chapters matthew 28 mark 16 luke 24 and john 20. we find the beginning of the events that are about to unfold now here are the here are the events kind of uh in just one big massive uh statement you have the women arriving at the tomb to uh, redress the body of Christ. You've got the angel arriving that, that causes the guards to fall over, dead, you might say, or as they were dead, they took over in a faint. You find that when the women get there, the sepulcher is empty, and the women run back to tell the disciples that it's empty. You find that an angel reveals itself to Mary Magdalene, you find that Mary Magdalene is crying and uh, in her tears states, I don't know where they've taken my master. And it's Jesus, of course, talking to her and is saying, it's me. And then Mary goes to, to embrace him. And Jesus says, you can't touch me until I have uh, gone up to heaven. This is all that morning. You find uh, Peter and John running to the sepulcher. John goes into the sepulcher first and sees that there is an empty tomb. Peter follows him. We're told that John believes immediately, and uh, Peter not so much. We're told that the women, it seems, go back to the sepulcher again, and I'll kind of lay this all out for you on how I see it happening. And then in that same day, we're told that uh, Peter meets with the disciples, and Thomas is the only one not there. That's all on that first day. But that's only after Peter or Jesus had already met with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. There is a lot of events that are happening on this first day of the week, Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And it can be difficult to determine when all these events take place. Now, we're told by the Apostle Paul in one of the epistles that Jesus actually also met with Peter individually, separately, privately, not mentioned in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul mentions there was a separate private meeting 
between Jesus and Peter outside of what's mentioned here. That's different from the other day in the future where, P- where, where Peter is fishing and Jesus meets him on the shore and Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That's a separate event than what's mentioned by the Apostle Paul. There's a lot packed into this day. So let's back up now and get a, try to get an idea of the order in which all these events take place. All right, well, first, Matthew 28, verses 2 and 4, we find there was a great earthquake, another earthquake. This is after the earthquake of Christ's death. So God shakes the earth when Christ dies, and God shakes the earth when Christ raises from the dead. It's almost like the earth is responding because the people were not. What did Christ say? If these children don't sing my praises, then who will? The rocks will cry out. And how exactly would the rocks cry out? How would that look? You know, it's not like God will give little vo- little mouths to the rocks and they start singing. No, the rocks would cry out exactly like this. An earthquake would be the rocks crying out. And the rocks did cry out in an earthquake, an unnatural phenomenon. They cried out when Christ died. Do you think that the rocks were crying out? as a recognition of the amazing event that just took place. The death of Christ covered the sins of all those who would place their faith in Christ past, present, future. Or do you think the rocks were crying out in pain as the God of all creation died? The rocks did cry out at his death. Whether it was an earthquake of pain or an earthquake of joy because the earth knew better than humanity what just took place, I don't know what to tell you. I can tell you the saints, when they rose from the dead, they were preaching a joyful message. So it's possible that the earthquake at Christ's death would have been the praise of the rocks crying out as God said they would when man does not. But I guarantee you, the rocks crying out at his resurrection... That was the rocks crying out in joy. The God of creation has risen again from the dead. When the disciples should have been at the tomb, expectantly waiting, oh, this is the day, it's going to happen, he's going to raise. I don't know when. I don't know if it's morning, afternoon, or evening, but we're going to be here all day waiting. This is it. He said he would come back, grab a chair, sit on a rock. When he comes out, glory, God, hallelujah, praise Jesus. You are here. The people should have been there ready and waiting to praise Jesus. They were told he was coming back that day. When Christ arrives, there is no people, but the rocks are there, and the earth cries out in joy. (laughs) The soldiers, not so much. (laughs) The earth cries out in joy. There's a massive earthquake, and we're told an angel of the Lord descends from heaven, rolls back the stone, His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. For fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Another gospel tells us there are two angels. That doesn't mean that the gospel of Matthew lied when it states one. It just seems that maybe one had more authority. There does seem to be levels of authority. Maybe the other one was a secondary angel. I don't know. For whatever reason, God inspired Matthew to mention one angel, while other gospels give us a more detailed account that there was a second angel. I think when I read it, I think there was a speaking angel and another, I don't know, present angel for encouragement. Maybe he won the lottery and he got to join the other one. I don't know how that worked out or why that worked out. But it seems that one of them did all the speaking and the other one was there for some kind of moral support. (laughs) So there were two angels, although Matthew only mentions one. All right. 
Now, the women, they arrive early in the morning. That's in Mark 16, 2 through 4, and Luke 24, 1 through 3. Uh, they're bringing the spices, and they said among themselves, who shall roll away the stone, right? We're told that in multiple Gospels. They're a little concerned about what's going to happen when they get there. And when they get to the stone, we're told they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. In, in John chapter 20, verse 1, they see the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved, a disciple of Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid them. She being, I believe, Mary Magdalene. Because in John 1, we're told specifically, Mary Magdalene came early. The other Gospels tell us she was not alone. Others came with her. But John 20, verse 1, specifies Mary Magdalene. And then goes on to say, she seems to be the one to take the message. Not that the other ladies didn't join her with the message as well, but she, be, she seems to be the spokesperson for the women as they hustle back. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, we're told in verse 4, when they looked, they saw the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And verse 5, and the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen. Come and see where the place where the Lord lay. It's interesting that not all the Gospels give us the account of the angels ushering the ladies in. You could have a, a parcel picture of this event by only reading one Gospel. If you read John, you would picture Mary Magdalene coming by herself, seeing the empty tomb, and running back. You read the other Gospels, oh, Mary and her friends came and go back. You read Matthew, oh, Mary and her friends came, saw the angel, saw the tomb, and went back. Reading all four gospel accounts is not a conflicting story. It's a fleshed-out story. They all give pieces that other parts do not. And so the angel says, come on in. They see Jesus is gone, and they run back. Now, I told you, Mary has the opportunity to see not only an angel, she sees later Jesus, thinking Jesus is an angel. Or, or no, I'm sorry, thinking he's a, he's a gardener. But Mary, with the women, see this angel. In verse 4 of Luke 24, And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Those two, right? Angels. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces, they said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men. Mark also tells us that a young man sitting on the right side clothed in a white garment, and they were affrighted. So three of the Gospels tell us of the angels. Two of them... Uh, mention multiple angels, two angels, while one of them mentions one angel. I'm sorry, no, one of them mentions two angels, two of them mention one angel, and John just kind of ignores the angels altogether. <laughs> John just says Mary shows up and sees it gone and rushes back and tells them that Jesus is not there. All right, let's go on now to the, the what, what is the next event. So they depart from the sepulcher, and uh, we're told in verse 9, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, all hail. And they came and held him by his feet, by the feet, and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there, there shall they see me. Of all of the events of this morning, this is the most confusing to me on where, where it lays. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons. Why is Mary still confused about Jesus later when she sees Jesus here in Matthew 28. It tells us, as they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, 
and did run to bring his disciples word as they went to tell his disciples Jesus met them not only that they held his feet they touched him I'm confused about two things have you figured out what they might be the first one I mentioned why is Mary still upset and confused about Jesus and where he is if she saw him here the second thing I'm confused about is why did Jesus say don't touch me when Mary sees him but allows the women to touch him here what do you guys think do you have thoughts on what could be the solution to I would say a minor dilemma this is definitely not groundbreaking, the Bible's a lie, my whole religion falls apart, my faith means nothing kind of stuff. That is not what this is. It is perplexing. It is a head-scratcher. Where does this fit? Kim, what do you think? All right, that, that would have to be. I believe that Jesus saw and went to heaven God the Father. But Matthew seems to place this event... It says, as they left the sepulcher to go tell. Mary goes and tells, then comes back and sees Jesus. And Jesus says, don't touch me. I have not gone yet. So you're right. It, for the ladies to touch Jesus here, I think it, logically, Jesus had to have already ascended in heaven and came back. I have really only one solution for you. And it answers both of my problems. Mary went with the group there, rushed ahead on the way back. On the way back, as they departed, Mary, which is why in John 20, it seems that Mary is the one telling the disciples because she rushed ahead to tell the disciples. It's hard for me to believe that the other women would not be running back as well, but... Having not been there, I can come to some, some assumptions. They stayed longer at the tomb because they were just so shocked. They were in awe by the angel. Maybe there's a conversation with the angel more than what we're told. Did they start talking to the angel? We don't know. Maybe the ladies in complete shock and awe didn't have the energy emotionally to walk, to run back. Mary Magdalene seems to be a younger woman. I can tell you the other Marys that are mentioned, they're not younger women. <laughs> they're mothers, a little older. Maybe took it slower, very likely took it slower. Mary Magdalene's like, I can't take this speed, and she rushes back. That's how I see it happening. That's really the only way I can fit this in. Not saying I'm, I've come up with the only conclusion. That's just the only conclusion that I've come up with. If there is another one, I don't know what it is. So Mary dashes back, and this is where it really gets crazy. Literally gets there and back <laughs> before the ladies, the, the older group of ladies, even get there the first time. So that, that's the only thing I can come up with. These ladies are walking so slow that Mary Magdalene runs there, tells the disciples, runs back. I must have taken a different, different route. They, they must not have gone the same way. Otherwise, like Mary's like, you guys are still going there, you know, running back. Goes a different way, takes a shortcut, I don't know. Gets to the tomb before the elderly group of ladies sees Christ here in Matthew 28. Because, I agree, Kim, Jesus would not tell Mary, don't touch me, I have not yet ascended, when allowing these women to touch him. It has to have been after. So, a delayed meeting in Matthew 28, but placed in a way where it doesn't seem delayed. But I've told you recently, 
that in first century, sometimes events were placed in order of priority, not necessarily chronologically. It was a way of writing. It was a form of writing. So don't get caught up. The Bible never claims, here is the exact chronology. It doesn't say, it just says, here's an event, and here's an event, and here's an event. Sometimes you've got to use some critical thinking to place the events where they belong. All right, so I don't believe Matthew 28, 8 through 10 has happened yet. Mary rushes ahead, tells the disciples, Peter and John rush to the tomb, and Mary, having run there, is running behind them. Now, do you know who wins the foot race between Peter and John? We're told. John makes sure that we all know. It's John. So between Peter and John, John beats Peter. For Peter's sake, it seems Peter beat Mary. So we got John in first place, Peter in second place, and Mary a distant third. You can't blame the girl. She's already ran once on the way there. She's winded, okay? So John gets to the tomb. Well, let's, let's see here. We're going to look at John 20. So Peter went there forth, and that other disciple, John, uh, we're told in verse 4, they ran together. The other disciple did outrun Peter, came to the sepulcher. Stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cl uh, clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then came come his son and Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher. All right. So John got to the finish line first, but Peter crossed the finish line first. I don't know if that's an issue or if that mean, meant anything for Peter, but he walks in first as John is standing there in awe. Then went the other disciple, verse 8, into the sepulcher, sees the same things, and believed. We're not told that Peter believed when he saw. We're told John believed when he saw. We're in John 20, if you're wondering. John chapter 20, verse 9. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. All right, so that's the thing. The religious leaders knew Jesus made this statement. The apostles, when it says did not know, it's not because they did not hear. Christ told them. It's not because they could not have understood. Even the religious leaders, the Pharisees, understood what Christ was saying. The apostles, for various reasons, did not grasp this truth. Right here, John 20, they knew not the scripture that he must, not, that he must rise again from the dead. Not knew in the sense of didn't understand it, didn't believe it. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Where is the angel that had met the ladies? God allowed the women to see the angel, not the men. Could it be because the women were first on scene and God gave them that blessing? I believe that the first one to see Jesus was Mary Magdalene. So then you get into John 20, 11 and on. Mary shows up. She already saw the angel, rushed ahead, talked to the disciples. Peter and John beat her to the tomb. She rushes back, and she gets there. Peter and John are gone. Again, I don't know if they also went a different route or as they're running, hey, Mary, you were right. See you later. And Mary's like, oh, and she keeps going. I don't know what's going on. She arrives at the tomb by herself at the tomb the second time now in the morning. And this time the angels are gone. But who is there? Christ. And so you know the story. She thinks he's the gardener. He says, why are you crying? She says, I don't know where he is. Now, I, I, I'm sorry. I told you that um, Mary saw the angels when they were there as a group, and, and it seems that she might have. I don't know why she doesn't know where Jesus is when the angel told her. She doesn't believe the angel. It's possible that when she got there with the group, she saw it right away and left, and maybe the angel didn't reveal herself to Mary. I don't think that's likely. So all I can assume is Mary did see the angel, and maybe she was so emotional. Has it ever happened? Someone says something, but you're not really 
processing what they're saying. That in whatever really crazy way, Mary had an experience with an angel, but her sorrow was so deep. Even an amazing experience with an angel did not break through her sorrow. That's what I believe. I'm not telling you that I know that for certain. There's a slight possibility Mary did not experience the announcement of the angel, which is why she's confused where Jesus is. It's a slight possibility. I just can't see that being the case because we're told when they arrive, the angel's already there. That's why I think that. But I think it's a good point. You're not going to wow someone with great spiritual truths when they are in deep sorrow. They're not prepared to hear it. I said this recently. Someone in deep sorrow doesn't need all the biblical answers that you've stored away in your little book. They need your embrace. They don't need to listen to you. You need to listen to them. Because even if you were an angel in white, shining garments, their sorrow so deep, they're still not hearing what you're saying. And Mary Magdalene is an example of that. So she comes back, still confused on what's going on, in some kind of uh, a, a, a traumatic emotional state, and she just breaks down. She's, she's physically exhausted. She has run multiple times, right? Walked there, ran back, ran back. The girl's exhausted. Already with the emotional sorrow of going to re, redress the body of Christ, already crying, already sad, now confused and tired and hungry. Running really makes you hungry. The girl probably hasn't eaten yet. It was early in the morning. All of these things combined, she's a wreck. And then Jesus arrives at what, have been, what would have been the lowest point for Mary, probably in days, maybe since the death of her Lord on the cross. Since that day, Mary is at a new low point, and Christ arrives. Just on cue, you might say. He does not reprimand her for her lack of faith. He does not say, Mary, I gave you the truth. You should have heard. I was coming back. No. He says her name. Jesus saith unto her, verse 16, Mary. He just states her name. The love, the compassion, the peace that Christ attached to just saying her name was all Mary needed. And how do you know that? She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say master. Mary is in such deep sorrow. She thinks Christ the gardener because the tears in her eyes, she's not even looking at him. She senses the presence. She sees the outline of a guy but doesn't really care. I'm not here to talk to anyone. I don't care what you say. I am just broken. I am sad. I am traumatized. This man pesters her. Why are you crying? Don't you understand? They took my Lord, and I don't know where they brought him. Jesus does not reprimand her. He just says her name. And in that name, she comes out of her trauma. Her sorrow is washed away. She looks up and turns to him for the first time. 
she was not looking at him earlier. And then in her joy, all she wants to do is embrace him. But verse 17, touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to see my father, but go to thy brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. <laughs> Maybe the girl ran back again. <laughs> that would be an amazing thing, right? After that kind of uh, emotional event, she might have had the energy to run back. You're the disciples. It doesn't seem all of them went. When Mary arrived the first time, you thought, this girl's crazy. Only two, it seems, left. The rest of you stay. Peter and John come back. They outrun Mary. And when Peter and John get back, John says, he's risen again. Peter's like, I don't know, guys. I mean, the, the tomb's empty, but I don't know. John's like, no, he rose again. He's gone. He, he's back. He's back, guys. Peter's like, John, you can't prove that. John's like, you don't need to prove it. It's faith. He's back. The disciples are hearing this. As they're hearing this, I highly doubt that, that uh, the older group of women make it back after Mary. So I think, I think that after Jesus met Mary, he ascends to heaven briefly, comes down, and meets the older women as they're walking back, and then tells them, go and tell everyone what you've seen. So in my head, Peter and John get back first. And John is purely, I didn't see him, I saw the empty tomb, and that's enough. Then the older group of women show up. I can't prove this, but that's what I think. The older women, and like, we saw Jesus. And the papas are like, what? And John's like, I told you so. We saw Jesus. They're like, oh, come on. I got, ladies, are you sure? We saw Jesus. You don't talk to me like that, boy. Like, these are the older women, right? You don't sass me, man. These older women put these guys in their place. We saw him. We're not crazy. Then Mary comes back. I saw Jesus. It's just event after event. But the day's not done yet. This is just the morning. <laughs> then we have Luke 24, Mark 16. Jesus meets two men on their way to Emmaus. This is in what would be late morning, early afternoon. As he meets them, they don't recognize him, we're told. And they start a conversation about Jesus and who he was and all the events. And on the road to Emmaus, these men actually state, well, the women claim they saw him, but we, don't, we haven't seen him, so that has already happened. And it's spreading like wildfire. Not until they get to their house, when Jesus breaks the bread and blesses it, do they recognize, wait a second, you're Jesus! And then immediately, Jesus is gone. They run back to Jerusalem, and they say, we saw Jesus! <laughs> the apostles at this point are like, why is everyone getting to see Jesus but us? As they are arguing, or at least having a very strong discussion, I think by this point, Jesus has already revealed himself to Peter, from my understanding of how I see this. So now, you've got nine, I'm sorry, eight disciples, one of them hung himself, Judas is gone, 11 left, Thomas isn't here, he's gone, why he left the room, I don't know. So you've got 10 left in the room discussing. 10 left. One dead, one gone. Now two of the 10 are adamant. We've seen Jesus. Well, adamant Jesus rose again. John by faith, Peter by sight. Again, declared for us by the Apostle Paul in the epistles. 
So now Peter is part of the yes, he's alive. Two strongly stating it with all the women and now two men from the two other men, Rotomais, joining them. And in that discussion, who arrives in the upper room? Jesus finally arrives. Breaking all doubt for those who still struggled. Save for one, Thomas. Poor guy wasn't there. Jesus, we're told, arrives. And uh, we're told in verse 16, uh, I'm sorry, Mark 16, 14 through 18, afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them uh, which he had seen after he was risen. Well, Jesus is going to uh, appear to Thomas later, of course, and that's when Thomas is going to touch the hands of Christ and the side of Christ and the wounds, and that's when Christ is going to state, you're blessed for believing because you saw, but those who believe without seeing will be more blessed. Well, guys, I did my best to get us done, but there is still a little bit left. Fortunately, I planned for the possible event that I would not finish, and I, I am almost there, but it is 7.30. So we're going to wrap it up today, and I will complete our series on the life of Christ on the 27th, which is the last Wednesday of this month, and allows me to start my new series on the book of Revelation on October the 4th, as was my hopeful backup plan if I didn't start on the 27th. So we're still on plan B. I will wrap things up on the 27th. We'll kind of complete the, the life of Christ, which will get us a great segue into the prophecies of Christ's second coming. Thank you for joining us online. We will not see you next Wednesday. We have a business meeting. Going to be voting in some deacons in our church, and we'll continue on the 27th. Have a good night.